believe it's been uh, six months uh, since Jen and I set foot in this church, and uh, I remember then looking out on uh, all of you and hardly knowing any of you, and uh, how different it is now uh, as I see your faces and some of you that I'm beginning to form relationships with, and uh, it's, it's definitely been a blessing, uh, and there's still more of you I want to get to know. Um, but the process has been very rewarding, so thank you for that. Uh, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning, so go ahead and turn there for me. We'll be in verses 1 through 11. I'll give you just a second to get there. We'll be switching back and forth between the NIV and the ESV, two of my favorite translations. And we'll go ahead and kick it off with verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now, one doesn't have to spend much time in meditation on these verses to quickly see that what Paul seems to be saying here is to walk away from the old self to the new self in Christ. And you might come up with your own, but today we will be looking at how to do just that. Three ways to walk away from your old self. Three ways to walk away from your old self to your new self in Christ. The first will be turning your focus away from things on earth to someone in heaven. The second will be killing, yes, killing your old self. And the third and final one will be embracing your new self in Christ. So let's go ahead and look at the first one. Notice in verse 2, he says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So let's just start by asking the question, why would he say that? Well, obviously, if your mind and thoughts are characterized or preoccupied by earthly things, then it follows that your mind will be earthly by default. And it doesn't matter what it is that, you know, a mind can be preoccupied with anything. 
A mind can be preoccupied by primarily politics, cultural wars, an us-versus-them mentality, sex, pornography, romance. A mind can be preoccupied by anxious thoughts, fears, constant anxiety. It doesn't matter what it is. The point is that the focus is on this earth. The focus is on this world. Now, I don't know a lot about cameras, but uh, last year I did some videography for my brother-in-law's business, and one of the first tricks you learn with cameras is the power of focus. I'd be, say, you know, filming a soccer athlete laying down in a field, and everything, the sky, the field, the people, was in the shot. And then, with the smallest adjustment of the focus, all of a sudden, sharp and detailed, a single reed swaying back and forth. Now, everything I just said before was still there, the people, the field, the sky, but it was blurred out. You couldn't really see it. You couldn't make it out that well. And our minds are actually the same way. Whatever we tend to fixate on, everything else in our life is still there, but all those other things are blurry. They're out of focus. My question to you this morning is, is has something on this earth gotten your focus. Paul says that that's not where our attention should be. Why? Well, look down at verse 1. See where he says, you have been raised with Christ. Interestingly enough, in the original language, raised with Christ literally means born from above. It's a fascinating phrase. Born from above. So to summarize this, when someone sees that they're not right with God, they know they've wronged a perfect and holy God. And then after that, they understand that that same perfect God who took away the punishment they deserved and instead put it on himself for their own wrongs, and they trust in his love and his care for them instead of anything else. Here's what happens when that takes place. God takes that person and miraculously creates a new life inside of them. And that's why you hear the phrase, born again. Born from above. What God does, and here's what you have to understand, what God does inside someone is so radical, it's like being reborn. Now the phrase born again isn't just unique to Christianity. You hear people throw this phrase around when they have like a significant life-altering experience. They'll say, it was like I was reborn. The phrase isn't unique to Christianity. What is unique is that this rebirth is as one of God's own sons. The rebirth is as one of God's own daughters. 
That's the miracle that Scripture is talking about. So right at the start here, we're being told, don't let your mind dwell on the fleeting, the insignificant, the temporary, the meaningless, because that's not where your true home is. That's not where you belong. And it's as if he knows how prone we are to forget that. Look down at verse 1 again. See the words he uses. Seek. I'm searching, actively looking for something. And in verse 2, set your mind. I'm focused. Most of my thoughts are up above on things that are above. But there's one more element here that's perhaps the most important. Mark that after he says, set your mind on things that are above, he follows it with what? Where Christ is. So the main idea here is that this focus isn't just on something, but someone. And that's followed up when he says, your life is hidden with Christ. Meaning everything you are, everything you're supposed to be, is found in Him. So the first way that we're being shown to leave your old self is to take the camera of your heart, the focus, and turn it away, whatever it is, away from the things on this earth to someone in heaven. And that is extremely important because this next one is very unpleasant. Number two, kill your old self. Look with me at verses 5 through 9. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Okay, so here's the frustrating reality here, is that after Christ begins a new life in you, the old self just doesn't disappear. You see, something that makes Jesus different than all other religions in the world is he says, the greatest enemy you will ever face is not anything outside of you, it is inside of you. Think about that for a moment. In Matthew 15, Jesus says just this. He says, For out of the heart, out of the heart come evil thoughts murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. See, and that's why Paul here in these verses is telling us put that self to death. There's the temptation as we go on about our lives. How does vision work? We see things that are outside of us. We think about things that are outside of us. It's very easy for us to see other people's faults. Right when I started dating my wife, the first thing I noticed was she was a Wildcat fan. One of the, sec- one of the things that... And then one of the first things that uh, Jenna noticed about me is I was really quiet during football season. 
it's extremely easy to see other people's faults. It's very difficult to have a vision that internalizes, that is able to look within yourself, which is why Scripture says things like, examine yourself. This is why Jesus says things like, out of the heart is the problem. The old self is the problem. Okay? Which is why we must put that self to death. Now, of course, the question is, how does that actually work? Let's just be honest, can it work? How do you get rid of something that is so ingrained in you, it's a part of you? The question here is how in the world, if we're being honest about the kind of people that we are, how in the world can we get rid of our old self? Well, first to do that, you need to know the Bible says that all of mankind has what it describes as either false hopes or a true hope. Now, that's all of mankind, which means whether you believe in God or not, the Bible is telling you, here's your heart's tendency. Here's how your heart works. Here are the things in your life that you think you have to have. In essence, here are your heart's false hopes. And not only do these false hopes keep us from killing our old self, they actually feed it. They keep it alive. If you want to kill, like Scripture talks about, kill your old self-centered man, watch these false hopes closely. And these are just some common ones. We'll start with the first one. The false hope of sex and relationships. Now, sex is built into us, and at its heart, it's made to be held together by love and a dedication to someone else. Now, you don't have to have this to live a fulfilled life, but what you'll find is, at the same time, it is such a large part of who you are, you'll be surprised by how much you really want it, how much you desire it. For example, you might not know when you started, but uh, now you find yourself looking at pornography on a regular basis, and you're surprised by it. It's a normal part of your life. But you also find that no matter what you try or attempt, you can't stop thinking about it or doing it, and that surprises you too. Or from just, say, a relational standpoint, you find yourself constantly obsessing about finding a relationship, the right relationship. Or you're in a relationship already, and you're constantly thinking about how someone else could be better than what you currently have. And here's what's happening. In the back of your mind, though you might not admit it yet, you feel that you won't be satisfied until you have this thing. You discover you can't stop looking at images. You can't stop obsessing about finding a relationship and analyzing it and running it through your mind and caring about it more than you even want to. Your mind is fixated or focused on this one thing. And what's taking place here, and again, you might not realize it, but sex has become your false hope. 
or a relationship has become your false hope. Now, you could call false hope idolatry because that's actually what the Bible calls it. These are the things I can't stop doing because I must have them. And because I have to have them, they drive me. They drive my actions and my behavior. Somehow, wherever it happened, I see them, my heart sees them as musts. They're not just musts, though. They're my security. They're my comfort, something I can rest in. And that's why I run after them, because they appear like they're going to fulfill me. That's what a false hope is. So that's just briefly sex and relationships, but the truth is a false hope can be absolutely anything. Another one is the false hope of performing. Now this one takes a lot of forms, but at its core is my value is attached to the things I do. Now this is subtle because your mind turns good things. This is what's happening. Your mind is turning good things into ultimate things. False hope of performing. Run through this with me. If I haven't helped my loved ones this week, I feel crushed. If I haven't received a promotion in three years, I feel inadequate. If my kids' grades aren't up to par, I'm a horrible parent. If the work that I'm doing at the job site isn't respected by others, I'm a failure. What's happening is my hope and value slowly becomes tied to how well I'm doing, what I'm accomplishing. Now, also, here's the thing. Hard work, self-discipline, those are good things, right? But here's an insight into the self. If you start attaching your value to the things that you do, which is very easy to do, what begins to happen is you use your old self to manage self. Does that make sense? I don't feel adequate until I can point to certain things that I'm doing, and so I look at my accomplishments as how I'm valued. And so if I don't accomplish much in the next couple months, or my life goes south, or my kids don't turn out the way I wanted them to, or I'm not as smart as I thought I would be, what's your only hope to feel adequate? It's to work harder to get those things. And your only way to feel valuable is to run after them, to chase them to search after them, and what you begin to do slowly is use your old self, your works, your habits, whatever, to make up for yourself. It's a total contradiction of the mind, and that's why we need Jesus. You see why Jesus had to come? You see how desperate our hearts and our old self is? It will do anything to keep it alive. Uh, people who live in, really everyone's prone to this, but the difficulty here is what I said before, we make good things ultimate things in our mind. That's the mistake the self makes. So people in rural communities, what are they often? They are hardworking. That is respectable, and it should be respected. 
Is self-discipline a good thing? Would we say that's a bad thing? No. Is hard work a bad thing? No. But if you use it as a replacement for feeling your own value, you will only be, feel valuable based on how well or not you're doing at any given time. And the truth is, value in the heart of man goes deeper than that. It has more to do with what you're able to do on your own. Uh, another one would be the false hope of control. I mention this one because it's particularly dangerous for people who are prone to anxiety and anxious thoughts and fearful thoughts. Uh, I feel, here's what, how the mind typically works. I feel safe when I'm able to control my thoughts. So if I f- deal regularly with anxiety or fears, I have to figure them out. I have to control them. I have to know everything. If you've ever talked to an anxious person who's thinking about things that are going on in their life, they're always talking like this. Oh, what if this happens? And what if this happens in the future? And what if so-and-so doesn't turn out? Uh, I need to know. I need to know how I'm going to control this. And what they end up doing is they make control. If they can know everything that's going to happen and if they can control their circumstances then they can feel okay. They can feel secure and safe. And so what they do is they make control a false hope in their life. And I don't know if you know this, but no one on this earth is able to control their circumstances. And so people like that are very unsettled, very unstable. Have you ever had friends where you talk to them and you're always thinking, They're always upset about something. They're always worried. They're always thinking about things they can't control. It isn't just because they do that. They view control as a way to make them feel okay. I've done this plenty of times in my life, so I know a lot about it. False hope of control. Another false hope. Again, you can call these idols, the things we rest and trust in, um, Another one is acceptance. Now, this one can take a lot of forms as well. Um, Now, again, these are, if this is a false hope, think with me. These are things I have to have, right? If I feel like I have to be accepted, I cannot let other people know about my inadequacies. When someone asks me how I'm doing, I typically respond like, Oh, I'm doing great. I'm fine. And you could have the worst week of your life and someone asks you how you're doing and you're like, oh, awesome. I'm doing great. You don't want anyone else to know. This is very common, especially in churches. We get this idea because we're in a church, we've got things together. We're part of a Christian society, a Christian group of people. No one can know that I struggle with pornography. No one can know that I'm lonely because Christians aren't supposed to be lonely. Okay? No one can know that I don't feel accepted. So what are, here are some signs to watch out for if you uh, have made acceptance your false hope. Uh, you tend to constantly think of other people's opinion of you. 
you tend to run it through your mind. You worry about what someone else is thinking. Um, if someone criticizes you, you're defensive. Uh, you cannot take criticism. Because what does that mean? That means that I'm not accepted. That means that I'm inadequate. I'm not doing something right. Uh, people like this are often very defensive. Uh, people like this often make assumptions about, remember I said they worry about what other people are thinking? So they have a conversation with someone, and that person is quiet in the conversation. They immediately start thinking, oh, man, what did I do? What, uh, what are they thinking of me? Um, yada, 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 yada. Because they're worried about not being accepted. So are you starting to get the pattern here? False hopes drive our behavior. Now what, I need to ask this question, what do all these false hopes show us? What do these idols actually show us? Well, what they demonstrate is a trap that we have to avoid. They demonstrate that it's not enough to change, to attempt to change certain behaviors. Because I can try to, I can look at the bad habits in my life and try to change them, but the reality is, if I have an idol in my life, something I desperately want, or a false hope in my life, that thing will always drive my behavior. I'll find that no matter how much I want to change, because my hope has seen this thing as ultimate, important, I'm always going to do that thing. This is why you see people who uh, are addicted to pornography or sex or always bouncing around in relationships or they have a relationship. You tell them, what you're doing is stupid. Don't you see the damage it's causing in your life? And you're like, they just don't get it. It's, they don't think logically. No, it's not thinking logically. Most of the time, they know there's something wrong, but they have set their hope and their trust in that thing. They think that thing is going to fulfill them. And what we need to know, Rock Creek, is that we can set our false hopes in absolutely anything. We can come into church and we can want so badly to be accepted, we don't tell our brothers and sisters, I'm struggling with this. I'm not doing well in this area. Uh, I don't desire a relationship with God right now. I don't even desire to read my Bible, or I can't stop doing X, Y, Z. So what the Bible is showing us is that we don't just have bad habits. We just don't make bad decisions. Deep down, it's the heart that controls the man. And the heart drives his behavior. Now, Jesus knew this. And that's why Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever known someone who can't control their tongue? Is it simply because... They're, I don't know. Is it simply because they can't resist making a clever pun or they can't resist talking about someone else? No, it has nothing to do with their physical mouth. Out of the heart, 
the mouth speaks. Either they want you to think they're clever, or they say something about someone else, say their desire, and they place their hope in acceptance. If I put someone else down, who does that make feel better? It makes me feel better. Why? Because I don't feel accepted. Why would people in a Christian church gossip or talk about others? It is because they have set their hope in acceptance and feeling adequate. Those things drive our behavior, okay? So, you can set your false hope in absolutely anything, all right? We've talked about these, and these are just some of the more common ones. But here's, here's what you have to ask at the end of the day. Let's get to the point of all this. I didn't come here to guilt you this morning or just make you gaze guiltily inside your soul. No, I'm, I, I did this because I want to ask you this question. If this scripture says, kill your old self, put it to death, how in the world are you going to be able to do that? Because that's what it comes down to, right? How can I do it? How, how can I make it happen? How can you kill the old self? If it can't be managed, if it's deeper than behaviors, if you can't tame it, what in the world are you going to be able to do? Well, this is where Christ comes in. Your old self cannot be tamed. It has to be replaced. And that's how radical Jesus is. He came not to improve you, not to develop you. He came in the deepest way possible, replace you. That's how significant the, old, the problem of the old self is. So let's look at number three. What have we had at the very first two? We've had, turn your focus away from things on earth to someone in heaven. And then we had, kill our old self. And then number three, we have, embrace your future self in Christ. Look at these verses. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. In our language today, we would say probably black and white, Republican, Democrat, whatever. But Christ is all and in all. That's not for me, is it? Rock Creek, this is what you need to know this morning. God's aim for you is not to help you, it's not to improve you, it's to restore you. Jesus, when he came to this earth, he knew there was nothing you could do to change yourself. 
He sees all the streets and avenues you take for acceptance, but knows you will never get it. He sees all your fears and cares that you desperately try to control, but never are able to. He sees how much you want to feel adequate, and the more hours you spend trying to do it, and the harder you work, the less adequate you feel. See, when Jesus came, he knew your old self couldn't be changed. It had to be entirely replaced with a new self. Which is why he became a man. This is why God became a man. He knew your problem was deeper and it went further than you could ever do anything about. And when he became a man, he took on your own inadequacies, he took them on himself. And you know what he did? For you, because he loved you, he destroyed them at the cross. He took the worst parts of you on himself. All of your old desires. This is the self-language, guys. He took yourself on himself and crucified it on the cross. That's how far he went. Because he knew there was nothing you could do about your bad habits. There was nothing you could do to change how much you worry and obsess, how much you try to get acceptance and feel loved. The things you can't stop doing. He knew all that. So for you, he took all of those desires, all of those things on himself, and he crucified them. He destroyed them on the cross and put them on himself. And here's the thing. If you trust in that, then that goes down deep, deep into who you are. There's no, here's what it becomes, there's no room for self because it's no longer I, but Christ. Okay? It is, the Bible is paradox of paradox. It says your problem is worse than you ever could have imagined, but his love is greater for you than you ever could have imagined. That there's absolutely nothing you can do, but Jesus comes for you. Okay? I want you to uh, pay attention to these last couple things, and then, then we'll be done. Whether you are a Christian, or you're someone who's not sure they're a Christian, or you know you're not a Christian, the answer for you, wherever you are at, is always going to be faith in Christ. Every time. Can you manage your old self? Do you have the ability to do it? Does self-discipline work? No. It cannot be managed. What, is it, what does Christ do for you? He goes further than that. He replaces it. He replaces your old self with himself. So that's why Christ... Wherever you're at today, Christ is your answer. Christ is your hope. Your faith must be in Him. 
You will never get over your bad habits. You will never get over your addictions until you see Christ as the only answer. Okay? Listen to this. This is from uh, Miles J. Stanford. He's someone I've read quite a bit. He says, We shall never know the experience of Christ's victory in our lives until we are prepared to count and reckon upon his victory at the cross as the secret of our personal victory today. Listen to this. There is no victory for us that was not first his. Here's what often happens with Christians. They view salvation as coming to Christ uh, for all eternity, and then after that, it's a disciplined life. It's a committed life. No, it's not. It's always faith. It's always trusting that Christ works through me. See, you can't change your desires, right? Christ has to replace your desires, okay? You can't avoid bad habits. Christ has to give you new habits, new desires. It's Him. It's always Him. It's always faith in Him. Every single time, if you want to change, it's going to be Christ, Christ, Christ. He is the only power in your life that can change you. When you don't care about others, you look to Christ. When you can't get over a pornography addiction, you look to Christ. When you felt lonely for years... Can you avoid that? Can you change that? No. You look to Christ every time. He continues and he says, What we are to experience, he purchased. And what he purchased for us, we ought to experience. And here's the end of it. Holiness is a faith in the crucified Savior, which sees more than his substitutionary work. It is a faith which sees myself identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. What I talk about at the very beginning, focus. What I talk about secondly, managing the self. You can't do it. Christ gives you a what? A new self. And we embrace that new self. And that, no matter what you are facing today, that faith in Him will change you. You know, at the very end here, um, when you find that you're in the family of God and you're accepted and you are loved, no matter what you're seeking after, I'll tell you, it is one of the most freeing feelings in the world. Because you feel like no matter what has been going on, you're finally home. You're where you belong, where you were always meant to be. There's a song by Kate Rusby. She's a folk singer, and uh, she wrote this. It says, winter comes around, and he knows he is homeward bound. See if you identify with this song. He knows he is homeward bound. His heartbeat is the only sound he's known. He once lost his way. He knows now that was yesterday. 
He's found his way at last. With each turn, a new dawn was cast. His friends now hold him steady, fast, and true. With peace in his eyes, the fear now is a thin disguise. With friends near, he sees only skies of of blue. He's nearer every day. He knows now he is here to stay. He cares not why he went away so long. He's found where he belongs. He knows he's been here all along. He is smiling as he joins his friends in song. And then the chorus comes in and it says, We'll sing to the morning. We'll sing till the bells they sound. We'll sing till the wandering soul is found. We'll sing now the wandering soul is found. What have you been wandering after? What have you been hoping in? It will not give you what you think. Christ came to restore you and make you new and make you so you would belong with him. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that no matter what we have been running after, you are our hope. You are our true hope. And there are many false hopes we can desire and we think will give us what we want, but the only true hope is in you and that's why you came. Please help us to uh, set our hope and our trust in not what we can try to do, but what has been done for us, what you did already. Thank you so much, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray, amen.